Welcome to the Finding Backcountry Podcast with your host, Dustin Whitwer. I am Dustin Whitwer, and this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast. Follow along on my journey of learning from the best backcountry hunters each week as we explore valuable information I use to find success in the backcountry. Let's get to the show. Okay, this is the Finding Backcountry Podcast, going to be episode 32, and I've got my good friend Corey, Corey Beckendorf back on. How you doing, man? Good. How are you doing? Good. Good. You are now the, I believe you're the most frequented guest on the podcast. It's maybe a tie between you and Jason. So how does that make you feel? It makes me feel good. Yeah. I'm psyched. Feel special. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Makes, uh, proves that I have a short list of friends. Well, you've got some pretty, pretty good friends. <laughs> yeah. I uh, just got done listening to Ryan Lampers. I was playing catch up, and that was pretty solid. Uh, pretty yeah. solid episode talking about that bear chasing down an elk. Yeah, and him. Yep. Yeah, you're behind a few episodes if you're back on uh, Lampers. I jump around. Yep. You know me. Yep. Yep. Me too. <laughs> um. So this is. I'm. I'm really excited for this episode. Um. Before we get into what we're going to talk about, um, talk about hitting deer in your truck. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, just got done. What happened? Went on a nice little, uh, fishing excursion to, uh, to what we like to call Lake X. Um, actually my first time there, but, um, we, uh, trying to catch some tiger trout and on the way home, had a good day of fishing and on the way home, uh, popped up over a little hill didn't uh didn't have any hardly time just got a new pickup dustin's known me long enough to know that i've uh kind of always drove beaters and um just bought a new to me pickup in november probably and, had never uh, probably hadn't hit a deer in one of your old vehicles for years you know i have <laughs> never hit a deer i grew up in iowa um which is probably I don't know if yes, insurance companies, I'm sure they know, but I bet more deer hit in Iowa by vehicles than anywhere. <laughs> like I was just talking to my buddies at work. It's like if 10 of us are at work and we all hunt and fish for fun once a year, one of us would hit a deer at least yeah. and grew up in Iowa 21 years, never hit a deer, moved out to Utah, buy a new and, truck, uh, buy a new truck, which first time I've also ever had full insurance on a vehicle. So. I, uh, you're that worked it. out well. You're going to use it. Yeah. What, so uh, it, what, what did it, did you square it up? Just straight up T-bombed oh, it? Or? I, I couldn't have center punched him any, any more square. So is it a, it, is uh, it a buck or a doe? Uh, well he ran off. We went and looked for him just to make sure we didn't need to put him out of his misery and we couldn't find him. Um, you know, if, if it was a buck, he had dropped his antlers obviously this time of year, but yeah. I think it was a doe. Yeah. It, uh, just nothing you could do. There wasn't even, there's was three other guys in the truck, um, good buddies of mine and they, uh, nobody even had time to yell deer. So it, yeah. uh, 
we're only doing about 20 miles an hour, but it, uh, I'm trying to sort out that shed trip this weekend with you so we can make it over to Nevada, but without a pickup, it might be easier said than done. Yeah, we, uh, we're definitely not diehards or else we would be out there, um, today because today's the official opener of the Nevada shed hunt and the Wyoming shed hunt, which I'm sure is actually a little bit bigger deal up around Jackson Hole and stuff, but, um, yeah, in fact, this episode won't air for a week and a half or so. Um, but yeah, if we were real dedicated, we'd be out there today on the 1st. But we'll see. I mean, I, I don't know what your situation is, but we can, uh, you know, we can meet you, meet you at the uh, super secret meeting point and pick you up. Yeah, no, we'll... Uh, um... Aren't we shed hunting in Tennessee? I yeah. Thought. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Albuquerque. Albuquerque. Um, no, yeah, we'll, uh, I got to talk to my fiance. I don't, I only get so many days off and I'm, I might still try to go sneak up and shoot a bear. So it, I, uh, the thing with the shed hunting real quick is it doesn't matter if we tell people where we're going because we are, we don't find we're, we're the worst shed hunters ever. We, <laughs> send them there. Yeah. Send come, them come to our spot. You're welcome to come hike the, uh, middle of nowhere for nothing with this show up that's fine yeah so that's the way it works yeah. stupid sheds tastes like crap anyway yeah but shed hunting i've been out three or four times this year and i don't even feel like i'm in the place where elk are wintering or would even be dropping their antlers i can't i don't know i'm I'm shed hunting an area that's not conducive to shed hunting in my opinion meaning it's there's not, um, you know, there's not, ge- yeah, well, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah, there's no sheds, first of all. Second of all, yeah. there's, there's no, um, there's no geographical landmarks or boundaries that really keep them wintering in, you know, in a pocket or a basin or, you know, one ridge or anything like that. Um, super, it's just, there's there's miles hundreds of miles of just the same type of country that they could or couldn't be in and so unless you're a diehard that's out there scouting them all winter which i'm not a diehard shed hunter um you know it's it's basically i think at that point it's stumbling on them um and i haven't done that yet so yeah it's kind of like it's kind of like old people their winter grounds are the same as their summer grounds they just stay down (laughs) in arizona yeah yep exactly but Oh, well, um, it's, it's a good excuse to get out and we've taken the llamas out once and we go, uh, you know, just hike the llamas around. And so that's what we'll get out and try to do this weekend. Maybe we'll do a shed hunting trip podcast while we're out there or something like that. It'd be fun. So don't let Jason on him. I got to on it. I got to pad the stats so I can be ahead of him. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. It's a race for the most visits on this podcast. So. Yep. Well, we'll work it out with your truck, man. Um, what I really wanted to talk to you about and what we're kind of prepared to talk about, um, something that I think this time of year, guys, at least guys that are serious, maybe guys listening to this podcast would be getting pretty serious about. I've seen some posts on social media um, that would pertain to this, and that is picking the right rifle hunting scope for whatever you're doing. And 
it's a big deal nowadays. You know, I know back when I was a kid, um, for us, it picking the right rifle scope consisted of, did you want your Leupold Variex 2 in matte black or did you want it in glossy black to match, yep. you know, to match your barrel or your, your stock or whatever? Um, cause you were getting a, you were getting a VX two and you were getting a three to nine by 40 millimeter. And that's really, there was no turrets. There was no long range shooting for us, at least I'm, I know guys were. And so it's gotten complicated, um, in the last few years, if you're looking to go down that road of not just shooting, you know, a rifle at three or 400 yards, like we like we used to do. And even if you are, maybe some of these things um, will help you take your shooting to the next level for sure. Um, and pick out the right rifle scope. So what, uh, what do you think? What's your opening line here? Um, well, a lot of options, a lot of good options. And I think that's why I think you and I decided this was a good idea just because you're I mean, we had this conversation five times over because you picked up that new Weatherby and needed a need a scope for it. So, it, yeah. Uh, well, and I think it it's confusing right now. It's if you know, there's just so many options and everybody markets it differently. So, and hasn't there? Wouldn't you say in the last maybe five years or maybe a little bit more, there's just been a huge shift in this market, particularly because companies have had to adjust to what the the shooters want. I mean, and that's, that's meaning new products and different products and they're making certain quality of scopes at different price points now. Um, and don't you think that's kind of sh shooken things up a little bit where, you know, maybe a $900 scope 20 years ago was not well, regardless of the time value of money, but I'm just saying a, you know, a higher end scope back then would have different features than it would now and all that kind of stuff. Don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, range finders have played a huge part. Range finders have gotten so good. Um, bullets have gotten so good. And the, the long-range market, more and more guys are realizing it's just fun to hit steel at 500 or 1,000 or wherever. Yeah. Um, and so you see long-range shooting just in general um, is growing super, super rapidly. And guys are, you know, either jumping over there to become better hunters or it's, you know, it's leaking over into the hunting side. And this... You know, I definitely don't want to target just the long range guys, but right. um, conventional range, like you said, three or four hundred yards, um, has really stretched out, and it's because of our equipment. We have good range finders, we have known ranges, um, good bullets, easy access to ballistics um, with smartphones and everything. Anybody can download a hundred different apps, so it's really easy to learn to hit a target at six hundred yards if you have the right equipment now. Right. Um, and so those, those ranges are just, you know, whether you think it's ethical or not, those ranges are getting better. And whether you think it's ethical or not, I'm all for a guy learning to hit a target better, you know, so at any range. Yep. And real quick, um, I, th I think it's important for people to understand your background for those who haven't listened to the other podcast, maybe if we explain this, but um, I like having Corey on for these some of these gear specific things, especially the ones that he's really into, um, because of your career and Corey, um, Corey works at Shields, a huge sporting goods store. And he is the manager of the rifle and shotguns. Is that right? 
Uh, handguns and shotguns. Handguns and shotguns. Um, and just inevitably because of that and having worked uh, actually alongside you in the, that same store for a few years, a couple of years, um, you get asked these type of questions that we're going to answer just de- multiple times a day, it seems like. Um, and so you you know the answers to them. You know what – you know – a, you know what guys are looking for. Um, we're going to go through, you know, a bunch of things that we're going to cover. Questions that you've come across just working in the retail world, dealing with guys coming in nonstop, and B, you know the answers to most of it. So, um, just just fits the uh, fits the bill to have you on, and you know, and you're not real, you're not going to be real particular to a certain brand, um, you know, and so we can we can talk pretty unbiasedly here, I think, on on this subject at least. So. Yeah, you kind of find, uh, I, I truly believe that shooters and reloaders are some of the most opinionated people on the planet, and myself being one of them. But, um, yeah, I get to deal with, you know, all kinds of different customers on a, on a daily basis that are all have different goals. It's one of the first things you ask them, you know, what are you shooting? Why do you, you know, what's your, what's your goals with it? But it, uh, um, and then we get, we get good product training at work you know that's where you know you cut your teeth with the working on bows right and we uh we get good manufacturer training and different things so it's a lot of questions all day long a lot of google research all day long so it's always fun yeah not not to toot uh shields's horn anymore but they they really do an excellent job especially for how large of a of a store and a company they are um, of still creating that almost pro shop feel, um, you know, as, as best that they can. And they do that one way that they do that is like, you're saying they have a, they literally have a training, uh, once a week, uh, every Tuesday night, uh, in Utah's store at least. And they're usually bringing in someone like, you know, a, whatever, a Swarovski rep or a Vortex rep or, you know, whoever it is that's, that's the real expert on all this. And then they're transferring that, you know, for an hour, hour and a half, uh, to the, the salesman on the floor. And so they, they do a very good job. It's not just a sporting goods store where guys just show up, you know, and slap their name tag on it and go out there and pretend to know about stuff. Most of the guys you're going to encounter at Shills, you know, have a pretty good idea what they're talking about. So. Yeah. So no, never any target moving target, but yep. Yep. Um, so before we get into actual like scope specs and stuff like that, I think we want to talk for just, uh, briefly lay a foundation of, um, you know, just some of the, the, uh, the jargon and the, you know, the, uh, what am I trying to say? Some of the, uh, uh just some principles, principles, principles. yeah, principles. yeah. Bal- ballistic yeah. principles that you need to understand, or that's going to help you understand what we're going to talk about with some of the, uh, the specs of the scopes, um, where where do you want to start on that? So, um, want to talk about bullet drop and how we measure bullet drop. Something you're going to hear a lot about with MOA and mills. Um, there's a lot of it seems like gray area. Or a lot of people who maybe know the lingo, but maybe don't always um, know how to use it or haven't connected all the dots. And so, one of the things when I'm trying to get a guy set up with the right scope. Um, I like so that you can understand the specs we're going to go over and what makes the scope different from another scope. I want to set up some, some basic principles. And I, 
yeah, I do this for fun. I, I do a lot of shooting. I grew up with an uncle that was a gunsmith, did a lot of shooting with him. And, um, you know, still I, I love shooting steel and I'm no expert on this. I'm sure I'm going to misspeak here on some of the calculations and different things, but I just want to go over some real basic, uh, a basic explanation of bullet drop. I think we could do like two, or you could probably just do like a weekly podcast about ballistics if you really <laughs> wanted to. It's a huge subject. So I just want to get everybody up to kind of elementary level. A lot of guys are probably, this is going to be, you know, pretty boring review for them, but, um, you know, it'll, it'll kind of set some standards for what we look at with scopes here. So are you, are we diving into kind of, um, ballistic coefficients relative to weight and calibers or where do you want to go here? Um, more so, I mean, we can talk about that a little bit. Um, and I know, uh, I know you love looking at the specs of bullets. Um, and we can definitely drag into that. I more want to talk about, um, like MOA and how we use an angular measurement and what an angular measurement is. Um, and then just a little bit of that. So, um, you know, how many inches of bullet drop you have at a thousand yards and how we measure that. Okay. So, um, I guess the, down to the basics here, um, rifle bullet leaves the muzzle. Um, and it is simply gravity over time. So if we put a target at 500 yards and we pull the trigger and we at the exact same time take a bullet and we drop it from the same level um, as that bore, it's going to hit the ground at the same time. So um, it, the when we start looking at like, faster cartridges or hotter cartridges or six five by 300 Weatherby's, the reason there's less bullet drop in a faster cartridge or something that holds its speed better is it's getting to the target sooner, you know? So a six five by 300 is going to hit a target at a thousand yards before a 308 will because it, um, you know, it's faster, so therefore it's got less bullet drop. So in that uh, in that mathematical diagram, basically, that you just created, um, again, we're assuming that we're shooting a bullet parallel to the ground. Let's say just perfect conditions. The ground is perfect, correct. perfectly flat. There's no wind or nothing yeah. like that. If you're shooting a 6.5-300 perfectly flat, whatever that time is, it it might travel 700 yards because it's going moving so much faster and getting covering so much more ground before it hits in that say five seconds, just for the sake of, and, and the bullet that you drop simultaneously right next to it, which again, this is all theoretical because you couldn't probably pull this off, but um, it's also going to hit at the same time. Now, as opposed to a much, let's take a 30, 30, for example, lots sure. slower round. Same same scenario, same height. Say you're five feet off the ground or whatever the the rifle's off the ground. It's it might only travel three hundred yards in that five seconds before it hits the ground. Is that generally? Am I am I grasping yeah. the concept here? Exactly. Yeah, okay. you nailed it. Um, five seconds would be a long time yeah. for a six five. Yeah, but okay. It uh, one. Yeah, it uh, yeah yes. The, so the faster it gets to the target, the less bullet drop we're going to have. Okay. Um, and for these scenarios that I'm going to lay out, um, I'm just going to use a factory 
factory ballistics of a 6.5 Creedmoor. It's a really popular round. I don't really want to get into calibers and um, everything here, um, you know, super deep, because once again, I mean, we could spend two hours on this, hang up the phone and do it again. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to use um, just a factory 140 grain um, Hornady bullet. And when we look at a, that factory round, um, under standard atmospherics at a thousand rounds or at a thousand yards, we have 305 inches of bullet drop. And so if we want to take a scope, um, you know, what you growing up, did you sight in your rifles to, you know, two inches high at a hundred flat at 200? I mean, did you guys kind of have a, um, it was theory that yeah, was, what we're put into you. I think we were an inch high at a hundred is all. Okay. We, you know, we, we weren't, uh, I mean, like nowadays I might take my, I might take my six, five, 300 and sight it in, dial it at 300, you know, right. um, zero it at 300 or something, but no, it, it was like maybe an inch high at a hundred if I remember right. Yeah. I think that's pretty, you know, pretty common. That's how we grew up, you know, two inches high at 200 with most cartridges, you're, uh, or two inches high at a hundred, you're flat at two. Um, and then you're, you know, putting it on the back at 300 is, you know, when <laughs> Kentucky windage. The trigger. Kentucky windage. So um, when we want to start stretching out further than that, um, or really being precise at three or 400 yards, because I, I mean, you and I could probably hit animals at three or 400 yards, minute of animal, um, and, you know, be in the vitals, um, just from practice and dad teaching us, you know, where to hold on the back and everything. But if we want to start being more precise at those ranges or stretch the ranges out. Um, we need to understand how to measure bullet drop, um, as it pertains to a rifle scope, because that's the tools we're going to be using. So at a thousand yards with a six, five, if we have 305 inches of bullet drop, um, we need to use um, an angular measurement to measure that. Um, there's there's two really popular options over here in the U.S., and really the only two options you're going to find in rifle scopes, in mainstream rifle scopes, are MOA and MILS. Um, MOA standing for minute of angle, and MILS um, standing for mil radian. Um, MOA is going to be based on inches and yards and everything that we use here in the U.S., um, where mills is going to be based on centimeters and meters. So, um, so it's a standard versus metric. So MOA is correct and mill is incorrect, basically. Exactly. Right. Okay. Because we speak American. Go, go America. Go America. Yeah. <laughs> so um, MOA with hunters, I think, is a little bit more popular. Um, with your precision guys, they really like mills, and we'll get into that in a second. But for right now, I'm going to talk about MOA um, because it's a little more popular, and I'd like to talk, you know, I'm going to use MOA because I'm more familiar with it. It's mostly what I use um, as we go through these scopes. But what a minute of angle is, is if we draw a circle and put a dot in the middle of the circle and then draw a line to the side, that's our radius. And so... If we act like that radius is 100 yards, um, and then we go up one degree, you know, and this is going to go back to some geometry, um, which I'm sure you did really well in, in school. Not bad. Um, not bad. Good. Um, so if we look at uh, a circle, you have 360 degrees. 
one minute of that angle um, is a 60th of one degree. So if we just take that same radius and move it one degree of 360 and then divide each of those sections in between by 60, one of those is one minute of angle. Um, so, the, very, so very small. Very small, yeah. very small. So 360 times 60 in a full circle, you would have 21,600 MOA. Um, when we measure that at a thousand yards, it, you know, when we go, when we use pi to measure a radius, right? I think it's pi r squared. No, that's, that's, uh, that'd be for area. So I don't know. I'd have to Google it, but I didn't do well. At, I didn't do well at calculus. Yeah. So one thing I do remember is, or whatever that, this well, is. I think that'd still be geometry. <laughs> well, I clearly pi. didn't do well at geometry either. The <laughs> Pi, pi is a repeating number, and I think everybody, 3.14 and then a bunch of decimals. I had a right. buddy named Derek who could probably list it to like 30, um, but I only remembered 3.14. When you divide that all out, when you divide your 160th of a degree at 100 yards, it comes out to 1.047 inches. Most people are going to, and I, I'm going to use just one inch for the rest of this, but just know when we're plugging it into a calculator, the calculator is going to use the 1.047 inches. And it becomes important when we bring it out to a thousand yards that we don't just use one inch. But when dad was teaching us how to cite it in, he wasn't worried about the 0.047 inches at the end of that quarter inch at a hundred yards was one MOA or a quarter MOA or quarter inch. Yeah. So it even says that on most of the turrets on the scopes, right? It it absolutely does. Okay. Um, and that's, that's something we need to know as we stretch it out or be aware of at least. Um, I still, when I do the math in my head, one inch is one MOA at a hundred yards. Now, because that's an angular measurement, if we continue to drag that same angle, the 160th of one degree out to a thousand yards, as that goes up, it, if it's one inch at a hundred, it's going to be ten inches at a thousand. Okay. And so, that that's that angular measurement that we need to use. And so, at five hundred yards, it's five inches. Now, to find out, because all of our adjustments are now in MOA at a thousand yards, um, let's say we have three hundred inches of bullet drop, just for an easy number. The math in your head is going to say, well, that is 30 MOA. Um, and it's, it's very close to that. Almost, I, I almost always recommend when you can use a ballistic calculator because it's going to run, it's going to run that equation. So 305 inches of bullet drop at a thousand yards would come out to 29.1 MOA. Now all your ballistic calculators, I could care less how many bullet drop, how much bullet drop there is. I just care about that MOA measurement because that's what our scopes are going to use. Okay. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, now mills, um, we can convert back and forth once again, because they're repeating numbers, the pro and con, the, the pro of the mills is everything's base 10. I just talked about one sixtieth of 360 degrees, and then we're using 12 inches as a base. Um, it goes back to, you know, the reasons that your teachers say metric might be better and maybe we should have switched over, but we didn't. 
Uh, we're too we're too deep at this point. You know, we would have to swallow far, our man. we'd have to swallow our pride, and yeah, we're, we're definitely not far. doing that in America. So, but mills um, is usually measured. You know, when we have quarter minute clicks on our turrets when we're sighting in our scope with MOA, we have tenth minute with mills, and roughly that's going to 0.1 mills is going to come out to 0.36 inches. So it's a little coarser. The math in your head's a little easier because it's all base 10. You don't have the 1.047 inches if you have 10th mils. So um, there's pros and cons to both. For for today, we're going to be running MOA. I think it I think it makes it a little bit easier um, overall. And I'm I'm going to talk for the rest of the day, kind of in the one inch at 100 yards is you know, what an MOA is, but no, when we plug it into a calculator, there is that repeating number at the end. And that does affect it as we stretch that number out. And so you mentioned calculators, talk about just briefly about calculators and the importance of using a ballistic calculator here. So all that jargon I just rattled off is really, really simplified when we just, when we put all of our ballistics, um, which is on, you know, you can pull right off the side of your box or with just a little bit of, um, little bit of reading online, we can understand we don't need that many numbers and your manufacturers are giving you those numbers right off the box. So the main things we're going to need to plug into a ballistic calculator, um, as far as your bullets go is your bullet caliber. So in this case, it's a 6.5 Creedmoor you're going to need your velocity which will be stamped on most every box of ammo yeah and if we want to be really accurate we're going to want to put it on a good chronograph right because when you run factory ammo it's different barrel lengths and everything but you can get really close and then just proof your data after um with a factory box so in this case i'm running uh 2690 foot per second 140 grain which is the weight of the bullet 6.5 6.5 bullet and then so we ever and then we we need what's called a ballistic coefficient um, we could do a whole podcast talking about ballistic coefficients but just know that ballistic coefficient is explaining how efficient a bullet flies so how well it is dragging like my my ford f-150 got worse gas gas mileage on the way home because my grill was all messed up and it wasn't very aerodynamic. Uh, if I had a Prius, I would have, you know, drug less in the air. So if you had a Prius, we wouldn't be friends and you wouldn't be on this podcast. So it's irrelevant. It is. <laughs> uh, Prius is I, I don't want to dog on anybody with the Prius, but they are more aerodynamic. than Sure. <laughs> so just, just a good, fun, clean yeah. Prius joke. It's fine. Just clean Prius jokes. They know. They know. Um, So a ballistic coefficient is going to explain how well a bullet drags in the air. Um, We're going to use G1 or G7. I I always, for a good bullet out of a rifle, I'm going to use a G7 BC. Uh, G1 is a little easier to find, but I find that G7 is more accurate. Usually the higher the number, so if we're just explaining G7 BCs, a BC is going to look like .250. And all that's saying is it is you know, whatever bullet they're comparing it to is a one efficiently. Uh, this one is 0.25 of that. So if 20, we're comparing 25% as efficient. 
kind of. Yeah, I don't like to use that, but yeah, it's pretty close to that. It, uh, so if I have two six five bullets that are both 140 grains, and one is .27 and one is .23, the .27 is going to fly better. So we're going to plug those numbers. So we have velocity, bullet weight, and caliber, um, BC. And we're going to plug those into our calculator. Um, and then we also need atmospherics, uh, air temperature, air pressure, altitude are all going to affect how that bullet flies. And we're going to plug all those in. So if I'm hunting and I'm setting up a turret right now or a dope sheet, we would, um, just give it our best guess around to the nearest, you know, on a Colorado hunt in November, we know it's probably going to be 25 degrees outside plus or minus 10 or 15. What is a, um, what is a dope sheet? So dope sheet would just be exactly what I'm explaining here is if we plug all this into a ballistic calculator, it's going to spit me out whatever information I want. And depending on what ballistic calculator, I really like using the Hornady. I use it at work all the time when I'm printing these out for customers. It takes, um, once you know how the website works, it takes two minutes to look it up and print it out. And what it's going to tell you is at this range under these conditions with this bullet, you have the 305 inches of bullet drop and 29.1 MOA at a thousand yards. So, so it, uh, oh, go ahead. just speaking of temperature and altitude and air pressure, just talk about wind is obvious, but talk about the effect that those other three will also have on any given bullet flying through the air. Okay. Um, just briefly. So altitude's a big one, um, and it's going to run kind of in line with barometric pressure. Um, as we go up, the air is less dense, um, and so your bullet is going to fly more efficiently. So if I'm shooting at sea level in Iowa, um, my air pressure is going to be different because my altitude is much lower, and my bullet's actually going to drag more as I get closer to sea level. So if I'm hunting whitetails in Iowa and then I plan one hunt out west and all of a sudden I'm shooting at mule deer in Colorado at 12,000 feet, um, your bullet's going to fly completely differently. And at 500 yards, that big of a jump is definitely enough to miss a deer. Um, so I try to be as close as I can with altitude um, when, when we go hunting. I generally know within a thousand vertical feet of where we're going to be. Um, but just know as we go up, say we're on a hunt and I think it's going to be 7,500 vertical feet and we go up to 10,000 for whatever reason, I need to know in my head, and this comes along with practice and judgment calls, my, my dope sheet or whatever ballistics I have with me are going to be a little bit off. And so if I don't have my ballistic calculator handy and I just have something printed on my rangefinder or stock, I need to know my bullet's going to drag a little bit less. Do so, you, do you have to have like, do you have to have, you don't have to have service to run a ballistic calculator. As long as you've got your phone and you've got power, that ballistic calculator's ready to do what it's supposed to do. Yeah, it depends on the calculator. Um, the one I use most is actually the only app in my life I've ever paid for. Um, it's called um, Applied Ballistics. 
Um, guy named Brian Litz is kind of like, he, he's it when it comes to ballistics. And he, he works over at Burger. I think he's a part owner or he, he's very high up over at Applied Ballistics. Um, he's one of those guys that figures out, like, if I launch, like, a missile from here and it's got to go, like, 40 miles and I'm trying to hit, like, a, a, you know, a really small target 40 miles away, he's the guy you ask how to do it. And so he, uh, he's, he, he's known as the, you know, he's got several books out, which if somebody wants to dive, like, just way off the deep end, um, it's like reading a physics book. But he, uh, he's the guy. But he's got a $30 app that's phenomenal once you know how to use it. That app will run without service, except for it has a button where you can load atmospherics. And so it uses your GPS and the National Weather Service to say, okay, we know Corey's at 6,500 vert. The National Weather Service says it's 59 degrees outside right now. And this is your air pressure. You hit that button, and it loads all that in for you. That doesn't work without service. Okay. But everything else does. So I can set those numbers myself if I've got, like, a Sunto on or, you know, have a Kestrel or a wind meter or something. Okay. Or I can just give it my best guess. And that just goes back to you know, how precise are you going to be? Because if I'm, if I'm only an inch off at a thousand yards when I'm shooting a deer, I'll take it. Cause then, you know, a deer's got an eight or 10 inch vital, but, um, you know, hunting inside 500, I don't think you need to go to that extent. Um, you know, a good guess at where you're going to be and bringing that info in is going to put you close enough. Okay. It just depends on what you want to do, but you do, you should know what your atmospherics, how it affects a bullet. And so your ballistic calculators are actually a great tool of let's see what it does. Okay. I'm at 5,000 feet. I can quick change that to 7,500 and I can see how much off I'm going to be with my gun, with my ballistics at 7,500. We can print two or five or 20 charts off if you want. Right. So Hornady is a great resource if you're just playing around online and want something quick. Um, that applied ballistics app, if you really want to dive into it, is uh, it's it. You turn on, you know, Coriolis effect, and you can go. You know, you can crawl as far into the wormhole as you feel. Okay. So, okay. You uh, feel like we've got a pretty good uh, foundation of the principles there. Anything else that we need to touch on? Um, no, I think real quick temperature yeah. uh, outside. I think uh, same deal as the temperature goes up. You're gonna your bullet's gonna drag less in your air as the temperature goes down. It's gonna drag more. Uh, wind is a like you said, it's it's a known principle, but that's what really separates guys. And I think that's the most important part of going out and practicing is really understanding um, what your rifle does with wind. There's no perfect all this all these ballistic calculators and stuff. That is, as long as your dope is good, you're gonna be right on. As long as your setup's perfect, your scope is perfect, everything else, it's it's a true science um, with everything else. But wind, you just you, you're shooting a bullet 300 inches up into the air, and a thousand yards away, I know what the wind's doing right where I'm standing. I don't know what it's doing up there. I don't know what it's doing down there. And that's what really separates great shooters from good shooters. But um, 
you know, wind, same thing. Those ballistic apps can give you, and some of the stuff we're going to talk about in the scopes are going to give you a good idea of how to account for wind. So, yep. yeah, so I mean, <clears throat> just painting the picture there, you know, just, just be aware. I mean, if you're, you know, like me, maybe a guy who might sight in a rifle at 1500 feet elevation in the middle of July when it's a hundred and, you know, I mean, in the evening might cool off down here to 115 in July, you know, 110, 105 or whatever. And then I get everything set up and I pack up and go, you know, hunt mule deer in on an early Colorado tag at 11,500 feet and a snowstorm blows in and it's 31 degrees at 11,500 feet that's just not the same correct yeah. yep big difference so we, yep okay okay all right then you want to talk about scopes yeah let's dive <laughs> do you mind <laughs> yeah I, th- I think that's a good place to go yeah, yeah we've covered uh covered a lot to get here which is is good because it's all relevant um okay where, where are we starting with scopes um guy guy that uh you know i don't want to say the average hunter but a guy who um you know wants more maybe than just um to to do what we did when i was a kid and slap a a three to nine and sight in at 100 yards and you know and not have any turrets or anything um what are what are some specs that we need to worry about okay um i'm gonna go through some real basic specifications here um, when we start looking at a scope that says 3.5 by 18 by 44, um, those are all, we're going to go over some numbers here that are all, it doesn't matter whether you're spending $100 or $3,000. These are all like fixed numbers. You can't do anything about them. Um, the first two numbers there are magnification. The low number is three point five is a is your bottom end of magnification. Keep in mind your eyes technically see in two power. So if we had like a two to twelve, um, that two is usually a you know or it's supposed to be with most companies exactly what your eyes see. So um, you know one to eight is actually backed out seventy five percent at minimum power. The next number of 18 is your top end power. It's what I think a lot of guys maybe get too tied up with um, is how much magnification we can get. Just because it's that number's bigger and it's a higher magnification doesn't mean the scope's any better. And a lot of guys kind of get tied up because you know once again we're in America and bigger's always better. So more magnification should you know make the scope better. Well, not and, always and true. Per- and particularly for longer range shooting, um, I think I think this the same is even more true. Guys just assume that if a scope has a high uh, range of magnification, then it's going to be a good long range scope. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really uh, yes. Yeah, that is a very common principle. And just just know at a thousand yards, good shooters can hit targets all day long at ten power. Um, and do really efficiently. And sometimes it's almost better to back that out. Um, so, and then the, let's see, the next number is objective. 
so that 44 millimeter, um, which why everything else is metric, but we still measure that in millimeters. Um, go figure. Um, but 44 millimeter is the size of the objective. And so when we look at the, the end of the scope or the bell of the scope, whatever you want to call it, that piece of glass is 44 millimeters. Um, that, that size does a couple of things for us. A, the bigger that is, it's like a bigger funnel. Um, we all want more light transmission. Um, and the more glass we have at the end of that, the more light transmission we can get. So um, the, why, uh, why, why when we throw a scope on there, why would we not just have a 60 millimeter or something ridiculous? It, it goes back to weight and how well it's going to handle and everything. There are, I've, I've heard of some like 60s and 70s. I think Zeiss builds something with a big old objective on it. Um, there can be a point where there, it's just too much. It's the same reason when you and I go archery hunting. Um, we both know that a 20 inch stabilizer is going to help us handle, um, you know, wind better or stay more steady as we're shooting. But Not can you imagine packing it? Yeah. So, and then it adds weight as well, the bigger that is. And then also cost as that glass gets bigger, it's kind of like TVs, you know, when you go from like a 42 to a 50, when you actually stretch that out, that, that last eight inches is adding the most surface area. And so the cost does go up just drastically as you get past from 44 to 50 to 56, the amount of glass actually going on there and how hard that is to build uh, really drives the cost up. So for a, so. a, a backcountry rifle scope, um, a good window to be in, what would that be on the objective? Um, I'll get to that. I think uh, I want to go over a couple principles first, but okay. just know you're going to see them anywhere from 36 millimeters up to 56. Um, one of the one of the other things that's going to come along with the power and um, objective is something called exit pupil. Um, you've dealt with this, I'm sure, with binos. You're familiar with the term. Um, but exit pupil is a product, once again, that a company can't just change. You can't just make an exit pupil better. But what it is is we take our objective divided by whatever power we're at. And so like a 10 by 42 binocular, which it's the same principle, would have a 4.2 millimeter exit pupil because you take 42 divided by 10 power. Right. And why that's important is our pupils are usually dilated between three and five millimeters. And once we get smaller than our pupil, it becomes really hard to look behind. I think most people um, have turned a scope all the way up to max power and had a hard time finding the center of it. And we can do things to the scope to make the eye relief better, but we can't do anything to the scope to make the exit pupil better other than lowering the power right. or raising the objective. Once, once you, once the scope is made or whatever the specs are on it, it is what it is. It's not. Yep. yep. And so that's why we, we, as we go up in magnification, say a 25 power scope, which is probably the most popular, a five to 25 is kind of the most popular range for a dedicated long range scope. Um, you're usually going to go to a 50 or 56 millimeter. Same principle applies to binoculars. Most 15 power binoculars are 56 millimeter objective because we try to keep that exit pupil above a three in a binocular. It's, it's, the, 25. it's the best, it's the ratio that you're looking for, you know? Yep. yep. So, 
as we get more power, go up in power, we do need to, you know, kind of figure that objective in, which is going to add more weight. Explain real quick, like, especially relative to binoculars, why wouldn't, you know, if, if light transmission is like the most crucial thing in, in a pair, one of the most crucial things in a pair of binos or a rifle scope, someone might be thinking, well, why doesn't someone just make a, like a 75 millimeter objective pair of 10 power binoculars? And that's because, like you said, they're the top end of that I exit pupil, um, our pupils dilate up to around a five, right? Yeah. And so anything so, anything beyond that is basically wasted. Is that right? Yeah. So it, that's exactly right. So it, you know, we want to keep it above a three or a four when we can. Um, but yeah, there's just once you, you're above five, there's, you know, there's nothing you can do. You're not adding anything more. So that that extra light is basically just wasted because it's it's beyond it's beyond where your eye can even ingest it. So. Yeah, and you might pull a little bit more through there, um, but not not worth adding all the weight and cost to it. Right. Okay. Okay. So it's still a bigger funnel, but you know, it's like a funnel when you're trying to dump oil in. If the bottom is only as big around as a straw, <laughs> it's still going to take forever. It's only going to get through. That makes sense. So in between the. Um, front and back we've got a tube talk about the the tube diameters and the importance of those okay so tube diameter um you've got three or probably four really popular sizes um one inch tubes so we're going back from millimeters back to one inch tubes (laughs) um 30 mil tubes so one inch tubes is what you know if you got a rifle scope from grandpa they're all one inch tubes the 4x weavers the 6x weavers all your very x2s or vx2s um red filled red filled six power tracker burris full field you know they're all one inch <laughs> scope tubes um then we also have 30 mil which is bigger um i think there's 25.4 millimeters an inch don't quote me on that but it's close um so the next size up is going to be a 30 mil. The size up after that is a 34. And then there's also a 35, which is a little less common, but there's still some manufacturers building them. And inside of those tubes, you're going to have an erector tube. Um, an erector tube is, that's truly your glass. Um, and so in between there, you're going to have springs holding that erector tube in place and so every time we recoil that erector tube actually rattles around in there and then comes back to center and most companies it's kind of a myth that guys think a 30 mil tube is going to pull more light than a one inch tube Um, and that that certainly can be true if we put a bigger erector tube in the scope but that's where most your glass is and your whole prescription, and it's really expensive to make that erector tube bigger. What most companies do with the erector tube, rather than um, making it bigger, it gives it more room to play. And so this is where MOA comes back in. And if I go from a one inch to a 30 mil tube, typically what's going to happen is I'm going to change my range of adjustment. And my range of adjustment is 
how much I can push up or down on that erector tube inside of that one inch or 30 mil tube. And I always try to explain it. If you think about an elevator, and so I'm, the reason we move that up and down is our scope adjustments. And so if I need, we just said we needed 29.1 MOA to hit a target, I got to know that I can move that tube inside there that many MOA. Okay. And so if you think of it as an elevator, a common range of adjustment for a one-inch tube is 40 MOA top to bottom. And... We are, when we sight a rifle in, typically you're going to be on right in the middle. So if we've got 40 MOA and we think of it in floors, we're on the 20th floor and I can go up 20 and I can go down 20. Well, I just told you I needed 30 to hit a thousand yards. So that's not enough because we, we only have enough room to move 20 down. What does that feel like when, you know, does it, is that, is that hit a stopping point on the, on the turret when you're trying to click past that, or does it just keep clicking yeah. and, and doesn't go anywhere? No, you'll, you'll know it. It'll, it'll just be a hard stop. Okay. And so it, uh, and it, a lot of times as you get towards the bottom of it, especially in low to mid range scopes, look, this clicks will kind of get softer. Um, and one of the other disadvantages of that is we're actually angling the glass we're looking at, right? It's got the reticle in there. And so we're angling it down so that the rifle bore goes up. Well, as we approach the bottom and the further off the center we get, um, you're using the edge of your glass. The edge of any piece of glass is always the worst part to use. So at a thousand yards, I'm now all the way at the bottom of my glass. I'm using literally the worst part of the glass I could to look at. On so, the on the longest shot. <laughs> on the longest shot. So it uh you know, it's kind of the nature of the beast with it, but that's that's what we use that tube diameter for is being able to move that scope um up and down more. So the downfall of the tube diameter um, one of my favorite hunting scopes is a Swarovski Z5. It's a one-inch scope. I just told you that that's like pretty much the smallest scope tube on the market, but it's lighter weight. You know, it's a it's a smaller tube, so therefore it is going to be lighter. That's what we sacrifice as we go towards these longer range scopes with more range of motion um, or range of adjustment. Is a 34 mil tube just takes more more material to build. So typically as we move towards the longer range scopes, they're almost always going to be heavier. Um, and, but we need that to get the range of motion. Okay. So our range of adjustment. How would a guy, I mean, aside from price, how would a guy tell what, um, you know, that ROA, that range of adjustment is going to be in a particular rifle scope? So it's, unfortunate that not a lot of companies list it and they all kind of call it something different. It's usually going to be measured in MOA or mills. Um, a one inch tube is going to be 40 plus or minus, um, 10 MOA. Uh, as you go up to 30 mil tube, you're going to be, you know, sixties probably on the lower end and, 
80 is going to be on the higher end. Maybe 100 you could squeeze out of some 30. I know the Night Force NXS gets 100 MOA out of that um, tube. But a, a long-range company like Night Force, they're going to list it right in their specs. Um, and they, and they should, that's a, that's an important, it's to me, it's like when you're shopping for a vehicle, I want to know how many miles to the gallon it gets. Well, I need to know what the ROA is on my scope. And one, one other important thing to note is the way most of these companies build that reticle, they use a square reticle. And so if we imagine a square inside a circle, the erector tube is going to be a circle. Um, but What's actually, if you think of a square inside of a circle and there's room on all the sides, there's an ROA for um, for your up and down, so your elevation, as well as your windage. Well, if my scope barrel is kitty wampus, and so I've got to use a bunch of windage to center it, um, I only get so much windage out of my... Um, left or right. Well, if I'm using 10 MOA pushing me over, you think about that box going inside a circle. Well, now I can't drop that box down as low. So if you're not perfectly centered up because of, you know, poor choice in scope rings or bases, or there's something maybe wrong with your rifle, you might not get all of that ROA. So if you had a hundred, 50 up, 50 down, but you're using a bunch of windage, 20 you left. might, yeah, you might only you might cut that hundred to sixty or fifty, um, which is which is a pretty big deal. So, um, and there's there's some things you can do with rings um, to to counteract that, but that's, that's one of the reasons you know you want a nice rifle that works. Yeah. But um, so you have range of motion up and down and left and right. I don't get too worked up about left and right because I try to use good hardware and make sure stuff's mounted. Um, but I did, I was just out with, uh, a guy who's like, you know, I can just tell by the way he talks to me that he's just got to dumb down the conversation so that I can understand the guys and uh, super, super intelligent when it comes to this stuff. And he drug me out to shoot and wind and I was using, let's see, I'm going to have to do some mills math. I was using five and a half mills to call for wind, which take that times 3.6, um, you know, that's like 200 inches or 180 inches. So I'm holding not only at a thousand yards, I'm holding, uh, 300 inches over a target. I'm, I'm holding 180 inches over right. to the right because the wind's blowing that hard. And I did, I, it's the first time in my life I've ran out of um, windage for a scope, but I was shooting a 308, which is a super moderate cartridge prone to being blown around. And then we were shooting in like 30 mile an hour winds. So it was nuts. I couldn't hit the target, but I was, you know, getting close to it. Dan could pretty much hit it every time in that kind of wind, which is crazy, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah. So you can run out of windage. Um, most hunting situations, you know, I would never take a shot like that in 30 mile an hour winds. I mean, and there's, you know, it'd just be silly, but it's fun to play with to see you understand it. So re recap that just relative to our 140 grain, 6.5 millimeter bullet. What MOA is a guy going to need or ROA, uh, you know, to say, say a thousand yards. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
at a thousand yards, if you're holding more than three or four minutes, your, your wind's blowing quite a bit. Um, you know, at, at a thousand yards, I, I don't think most hunters are going to try to take a poke past like a 10 mile an hour wind. Um, and if you've got five MOA on each side, that should be plenty. Um, you know, but a, a long range shooter in a PRS competition, they don't shut those things down because of wind. And that's what separates the men and the boys. Um, and so that might be a situation. That's what he was out there practicing for right. is he does shoot in those situations. And, you know, I, I did run out of minutes left or right there um, where, you know, and I think it's more important to know that if you have really small windows over there, it probably also means if you're off center left or right, when you're setting up your scope, you should probably fix it because you are, you could bottom out. If you're trying to squeeze as much out of your rifle scope as possible. Right. All right. Um, what else on scope specs? Do we need to talk? Um, you, you mentioned reticles before, um, particularly relevant to windage. Um, do you want to touch on reticles that are out there? I mean, there's, there's dozens and dozens probably, but, um, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about, um, the conversation of adjusting. We've, we've kind of focused on turrets, um, which was probably an oversight on my, I should have talked about this before. So we know at, a thousand yards we need to hit to hit this target in front of us right now. I want to hit, I need 29 minutes. There's two ways to adjust for that. And we've been talking about using a turret. So we take, you know, we take our rifle zero to the hundred yards and we turn that turret to 29, pull the trigger. We hit the target. The other option that we can use is a reticle. And, you know, you hear about BDC or bullet drop compensating reticles everybody's got different reticles. There's a lot of great reticles on the market right now. Um, but for hunting in particular, depending on how far you want to be shooting and how, how you like to hunt, sometimes making that adjustment in a reticle is more reasonable. And I, I'm one of those guys. So you and I both have, um, very similar Swarovski rifle scopes on our rifles. Um, I've got mine set up with a reticle specifically, um, and you've got your setup with a turret. And so we can make that same adjustment with both. I just, I'm always super fearful and we see archery guys. I love seeing it at 3d shoots and I do it all the time too, where you adjust your single pin sight for 40 yards, walk to the next target and it's at 80 and you forget. And I'm, I'm afraid of that scenario. I, I shoot a single pin on my bow, so I, I guess I don't apply the same principle, but I'm really fearful of that scenario when I'm hunting of getting ready to take a 500-yard shot for getting my scopes adjusted and then sailing one over the back at 100 yards. Mm-hmm. And so that particular rifle I've got set up more as a mid-range anyway. You can definitely be more precise. It's easier mentally um, with a turret. Um to account for that, especially at long ranges, you're always going to see dedicated long range guys making that adjustment with a turret. A lot of guys will make the first adjustment with the turret and the second with a reticle. Um, and so your dedicated long range guys need both, but you and I as a hunter can use one or the other. I know, uh, on your Arizona hunt, 
you know, that turret worked exactly how we wanted it to. Right. Yeah. And so just to paint it a picture there or to, to say it another way, we're talking about the difference between a scope that's just got one crosshair, possibly, yep. possibly some windage, uh, ticks going left and right, but one duplex crosshair, some variation of that, as opposed to, um, something with, uh, reticles would have all the different tick marks going down, yep. going down the, uh, you know, the vertical crosshair for different setup for different yardages or different distances. Yep. I think, uh, so like a duplex reticle you brought up, Leopold's been building that since like the forties. Um, and it's just a simple crosshair. Um, and then a drop compensating reticle is going to use those, um, some iteration of MOA and it's going to have hashes on the way down. So, um, and they, they call those subtensions. Um, and when we start talking about reticles, um, and we're, we're going to use those subtensions or those hash marks to measure that bullet drop and compensate for the bullet drop. Right. Um, and when we want to talk about reticles, um, something I get asked all the time at work, um, and we have this conversation a lot, is about first focal plane reticles. Um, there's a little bit of a confusion. First focal plane is kind of a buzzword in the industry, has been for a few years, especially on the hunting side. The long-range guys, they get it. Um, but a lot of people, I think, are just assume that a first focal plane scope is better um, because long-range guys are using them and because it's more expensive. Um, first focal plane. Yeah, explain oh, Go ahead. Explain it. Yeah, first, first focal planes are a little bit more expensive to build everything that grandpa shot and everything that we've used all your Leopold VX2s um, is a second focal plane rifle scope. A first focal plane, um, the reticle is placed in a different part of the scope. And so when we look through that, as we zoom at minimum and maximum power, that reticle shrinks and grows. And what it actually is doing is it's staying proportional to the target. And so if we have those hash marks in grandpa's scope, that's a second focal plane and we have it at minimum power, those hash marks can only be true at one power. If we say the first hash is at five MOA, um, that's not true at minimum power and maximum power. So most second focal plane rifle scopes are going to be set up, um, to be true at maximum power because that's usually where we're going to use it when we're trying to compensate for bullet drop where a first focal plane that same 5 MOA is going to shrink and grow staying proportional to the target um, I much prefer and I much prefer a second focal plane and the reason being is when you look or excuse me I, let's back up. I own, I own both. They both have their applications. Um, but for hunting, I much prefer a second focal plane. And the main reason is when you and I are hunting and I just re listened to Steve Ranella's podcast and he talked about, um, I think Giannis, I think Steve was taking a nap on a coos deer hunt and Giannis joked about while he was taking a nap, he turned up his magnification on his rifle scope. <laughs> 
And that's like a mean thing to do, you know, and we all know that when we're hunting, we're going to hunt at minimum power. And the reason being is if you ever have to take a quick shot, I always call it a snapshot. Um, it's almost always going to be close. A deer pops up at 50 or a hundred yards and you've got a shoulder, a rifle, he freezes and you've got a shoulder to make a shot. You want that at minimum power because your field of view is the best at minimum power. And you're going to be able to find that deer quicker and make that shot. If you had it at max power, you might, you know, you'd have a really hard time locating that deer. And well, when I have keeping everything still, you know, magnification. Exactly. Oh, that me or you, can you hear that? Nope. Oh, okay. So yeah, you're going to have a really hard time keeping everything still at those powers. So we like to hunt at minimum power. Well, the issue with the first focal plane rifle reticle or rifle scope reticle is those crosshairs get super, super fine at minimum power. And so to pull up and make that shot, it's really hard to see your crosshairs um, because they have to shrink to stay proportional to that target. So I, I much prefer a second. The other reason being most rifle scope companies charge anywhere from 150 bucks to $400 premium for a first focal plane because it's more complex to build. Um, would that have, would, would it have any relevance to whether a guy, um, is using a turret system or a ballistic compensation reticle? Yeah, it, it absolutely does. And that's where, um, it depends on how we're using the rifle. The reason that like a PRS shooter, which is precision rifle shooter, um, is going to want a first focal plane and he's going to run a turret. Every, every single guy with a rifle set up is going to have a turret and is going to use that as his main tool. And when he walks up to a stage, he might have two to five targets to engage. And so my first target might, I might have to shoot at 300 yards and my second target, I've got to shoot at say 500 and the, and I'm timed and I got to shoot five at both. You know, that's a really simple stage. Um, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to dial that turret to my 300 yard zero. So say, you know, I put five MOA into my turret, um, to hit the 500 yard target or 300 yard target, excuse me. And then I look at my dope chart and I need, uh, I need eight MOA to hit the 500 yard target. Well, the difference between five MOA and eight MOA is three MOA. So I'm going to shoot the first one with my reticle straight on in the middle. And then rather than making that adjustment in my turret, I'm just going to hold over those last three MOA. And so when you're, when you're being timed and you have several targets and I'm on a first focal plane, I can run that at any magnification. Cause I don't want to run a 25 power scope at 300 yards. It'd be tough. So it's really important with that application. But when you're running your turret, just know that that's true at any power or should be with a properly machined scope. So if I click 30 MOA into my turret at three power or 18 power, it's true either way. If I'm using my reticle to hold 30 MOA, it's only true at max power. Did I convolute that too much? You probably lost me, but you lo- I lost you. I'm sure, I'm sure everyone else followed along. <laughs> okay. It, uh, it, it's a lot. I, I personally like the 
the second MOA just for that reason. It's less complex. I don't have to worry about it if I'm turning turrets. If I am using a reticle to hold over to shoot a deer, I'm probably going to have it at max power. You know, if I'm at 500 yards, I'm going to crank this thing up. Right. So, um, and I do usually only set, set up a scope, me personally, for, with a reticle if I'm thinking I'm going to shoot like extended conventional range of say 600 yards I would use a reticle for a, a shot like that anything past there I'm going to be wanting to run a turret okay. so okay speaking of we, speaking of no okay. you're good speaking of turrets um talk about let's talk about zero stops and how we use those and why that's important okay um so when we, when we go to use a turret, um, I know your scope has a zero stop, which is a great thing because if I, if I zero my scope and I put it on zero, I might use a couple of revolutions to get around to how much MOA I need, depending on the number of MOA on your rot per rotation. So if it's a 10 MOA turret, I run it three full rotations to get out to 30. Well, when I'm hunting... I really like having what's called a zero stop on mine. And the reason you use a zero stop on there is I know I can always just turn that turret all the way back down and it's a hard stop at zero. So if my gun's been in my case or it's been bouncing around in my tent or you're, you're having an issue, you always have a reference point for where zero is. Um, and in a quick situation, you can always just crank it down. If you were to say sail one over the back because you had made an adjustment, you can always quick, just turn it. It's a hard stop. Um, and that, that zero stop to me is a necessity. Um, more and more companies are jumping on board. Five years ago, you didn't see them on nearly as many scopes. Now it's starting to become an industry standard. Uh, the way they set up the zero stops, um, I send a lot of guys to YouTube videos. Um, you know, if you buy a Night Force or a Swarovski, they all set those zero stops up a little bit differently. Right. Um, once you've zeroed your rifle, make sure you read the instructions um, because it does kind of get complicated um, or have somebody there that knows what they're doing. Um, but you will, if it has a zero stop, make sure you take advantage of it. When my, If I want to zero my rifle at 200 yards, I want the windage of an elevation to say zero on it. I don't want it to say five because then I got to do math every time I want to make an adjustment. Yeah. And that's as, usually as simple as, you know, an Allen or inch or whatever, di you know, d dialing your turret around in the sighting in process, whatever that may be with the, the scope that you're using. And then just simply re readjusting, you know, whatever the turret uh, system is and readjusting that to zero it out at, zero or bottomed out or whatever it may be on that particular scope. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, the two scopes you have something else to look at with your zero stop is, so you've got a Swarovski Z3 on your 280 Ackley, don't you? Yes. With a turret. So, um, that scope has, I believe 32 MO or 42 MOA top to bottom in, of a range of adjustments. So I can, when I'm zero on that, I have that much room. Well, once that scope also has a zero stop, the way they've designed that zero stop means from wherever you set that zero stop, you only get three quarters of a revolution. And three quarters of a revolution of your turret means 
you get 13 and a half MOA top to bottom. Um, I don't know if now, you've worked it out. Why, oh, why on, so on my brother's, um, rifle, that's got the same scope that we're talking about. Um, they took and had, you know, they, to get, you know, two, three, 400 yards, they were within the marks of that first revolution. But then as they blew past going all the way around one full turn, then after that, they had to manually mark, you know, six and 700 yards or whatever. Yeah, so that's so he can only actually turn that turret three quarters of a turn. Now he's only got three placeholders on there, and I think they zeroed it at two, and then used the first placeholder for three, four, and five. Yep. He can continue to turn that, and I would guess with his seven mag, thirteen and a half MOA, he's probably getting about out to seven hundred yards. Yeah. Um, That's... and your 280 Ackley should be pretty similar to that. Um, maybe not quite there, but close. Yeah. Um, now I just told you, you had 42 top to bottom. You cut that in half. You should have 21 going down, but because of where you set that zero stop, you only get three quarters of a revolution. So technically that scope, you know, if you just looked at the stats and didn't look how that Swarovski turret system is set up technically you should be able to get to eight or 900 yards. Um, and so it's something to pay attention to. Uh, companies are catching on that people are figuring it out. Um, that's where Oski, the Austrians don't hunt past four or 500 yards and 13 and a half MOA gets most calibers out past six. Um, I still love that scope. I own two of them, um, or iterations of it. Um, now your Leopold you just bought, um, which I'm, I'm a huge fan of. Um, it's got a zero stop on there. I think I'd have to look at the specs. I think you get 75 MOA top to bottom. That's a 30 mil tube and a three to 15. Um, and I think you get 75 MOA top to bottom, but with that zero stop, they're allowing you to use two rotations. So from wherever you zero it at 100 or 200 yards on your 6.5, 300, we get two revolutions. Well, two revolutions comes out to, I think, 38 minutes. Yeah. On so that scope. It's marked out to 37. Okay. And then technically uh, that would be 30, uh, 39, I guess, technically, that's not marked. So I like to use 30 MOA. Um, when I'm setting up customers, the thousand yard mark is a big deal. Everybody wants to hit it. Um, I know, I mean, that's you included. I don't, I don't see you as somebody, you know, you're not the guy trying to kill stuff at a thousand, but you want to practice out there. You know, we practice at 120 with our bows or more to shoot um, better at 60. Exactly. And so, um, I try to get scopes. Um, you know, if I know a guy wants to hit a thousand yards, I try to give him 30 MOA. Um, with the, with the Z3 or Z5 from Swarovski that you and I shoot, it's not possible. That's not a thousand yard rifle scope. It's a phenomenal scope. It was more money than your Leopold, but it's not set up to shoot a thousand yards. Um, where that Leopold certainly is 38 minutes on your six, five by three, a hundred, I imagine gets you out to, you know, 1300 or something, just something way crazy. A little poke. Talk about parallax as I'm looking at this scope. Um, this scope and probably most any serious uh, long-range scope. And sorry, I'm going to jump through this just so we can 
Um, I, I tend to let you, what I found is I tend to let you talk more than I probably would someone else. I would interject with more questions. I think just, just cause we're such good friends that I, we're just, I just feel like we're having another conversation. Um, so, but talk about parallax. Okay. So parallax is a phenomenon that happens if you're, so if you're driving down the road and your wife looks over at your speedometer and she says, why are you only doing 55 mile an hour? And you look down on it and it says 62, you know, now I'm doing two over. It's because that needle isn't perfectly, your speedometer needle isn't perfectly on that number. And so she's looking at it from a different angle than you, right? So you're seeing two different speeds. The same thing happens inside of a rifle scope and um, you know, the fancy Leupolds that your dad bought back in the day, they were always called AOs and you could turn, um, you could turn the end of the bell, you know, it had like hundred yards, 200 yards, 300 yards on it. Now that was a parallax adjustment. Now I, we have, I don't a, know that those, I, I don't know of anything like that on those scopes back in the day. What? Well, the fancy, the, if dad bought a nicer one than you did, then he would have had it. Yeah. We were, but, <laughs> we were just... We're just getting the the base model, man. We didn't have. <laughs> yeah. Well, the the old ones all had, and we've all seen those adjustable bells. Yeah. Um, the the newer scopes are all on the side. They're much easier to use from the side. Um, and if you have windage on top, elevation on the right side, you have a parallax on your left. And what that parallax does is it lays the reticle on the same plane as your um as your target and as, so, as the distance yes and you'll see a lot of scopes where they're marked it'll say 100 yards 200 yards 300 yards and then a lot of really fancy scopes don't have any yardages on there the reason being is that that parallax is actually dependent on your atmospherics as well so when your temperature goes up if you start shooting at 20 degrees in the morning and your temperature goes up to 80 your parallax will actually change and so the yardages aren't as important as knowing how to use it and having it if your scope doesn't have a parallax which your vx2 didn't back in the day um it's probably set at 200 yards or 150 yards um and accuracy-wise, um, when you get past five, you know, at 500 yards, you could probably, if your head wasn't perfectly in the same spot every time you take a shot, which hunting it's never going to be, that could account for one to two inches of um, missing a um, target perfectly. Okay. Which at 500 yards, that's you know, one to two inches is you know probably acceptable for hunting. The more important part is when you start stretching it out past there or when um, if you've ever seen the phenomenon where your reticle is blurry or your target's blurry and it becomes really hard to hunt. A lot of guys call that parallax a side focus because the second thing it does that's really nice is it kind of focuses um, your reticle and your target so they're both really, really crisp. Right. Um, and when we get past three or 400 yards, that's really important. If you're inside 400 and you've got a fixed parallax at two, 200, which is 200 at sea level at probably 59 degrees, um, you're, you're going to be just fine at those ranges. 
Um, but when you start stretching it out past five, six, seven, eight hundred yards, parallax becomes really, really important. Um, and it's something you need to learn to use. Um, and it's something you need to look for in a scope, honestly. Yeah. Especially longer range shots. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So anything else on maybe the specs of the scope other than, you know, I, I want to just briefly have you touch on, um, weight, um, especially, you know, for this podcast, particular to a backcountry setup. Okay. Um, let me, uh, what do we miss? Let me go, let me go through zoom ratio real quick. Okay. Um, and then we'll go, I'll kind of incorporate weight with as, you know, I, I always like to talk about a sliding scale when we're trying to pick the right scope for a rifle. Um, but I'll start with zoom ratio real quick and buzz through that. Um, so when you, when you look at the difference between your Z3 Swarovski and my Z5 Swarovski, um, the three and the five numbers are there on purpose and that it refers to your zoom ratio. So the old Leopolds were all three by nine and the zoom ratio on a three by nine is three. And that just means when you go from three pound, when you start at three, you multiply it by three and go up to nine. In a five-power zoom ratio, if you start at three, like your Leopold you just got, you start at three, multiply it by your zoom ratio of five, and that puts you at 15 power. And they um, that's a really expensive thing, thing for companies to do um, is to raise that zoom ratio. Five is a good zoom ratio. Um, you know, a three-power Leopold VX3, probably retails around 500 bucks. It's a three zoom ratio. The cheapest scope I think they make with a five power zoom ratio is closer to eight or 900 bucks. And, but the benefit, the pro of that is I can still turn it all the way down to three power and be able to have that full field of view, but also catch the 15 power when I want to take a longer shot. Yeah. Um, and it's something that I really like. I think right now the price points of the zoom ratio five scopes on most companies, um, I think are a really happy medium. Um, it's kind of something I look for is to bump up into that five range just so I get the extra versatility. Um, there's companies with like eight zoom ratios, but most of those scopes start in the, you know, 25 to $3,500 range. Okay. So should we move on to weight? Yeah. So you're building the you're building the backcountry uh, the perfect backcountry uh, rifle setup. Um, what would you be looking for? All these things considered, and then what would you be looking for um, as far as weight goes? Okay. So um, when I start looking at all that stuff, the first thing I ask myself is what's acceptable that I want to be able to hunt out to. Um, I really like the setting up like a really flat magnum, like your six, five, um, for, I like to consider extended conventional range out to five or 600 yards. Um, and if we're just doing that, we don't need to add all the features of long range because we've talked about several things that are going to add weight and they're all coming from long range scopes. And so, I don't want to add a bunch of unnecessary weight to any setup and anything in a backcountry, especially my rifle. Cause I don't like how heavy rifles handle. Right. Um, and so 
I think your Swarovski weighs 15 ounces. I think that's like a pinnacle. Like when you get down around that, like 13 to 16 ounce range, that's a really light scope. You're always going to see a one inch turret. That's not a long range scope. One inch but we tube. just talked. Yeah. One inch tube. We, uh, we just talked about that being, um, you know, getting us out to 600 with a turret or a reticle. And so that's that extended conventional range. Um, you know, I think, you know, like that Wyoming backcountry hunt, that's a, that's a pretty killer setup. Um, but we, we are losing the ability to really stretch that. And even if it's just something you want to practice out to a thousand yards, we're losing that ability with that light of scope. The polar opposite of that is a guy who wants to just be, um, you know, shooting flies off of his target at a thousand yards or 1500 yards, um, really heavy scopes. Um, you know, some of the night force ATAC R series scopes and, um, the, um, the razor vortex, vortex razor, razor gen two, yep. that thing it's nice. Cause it's got that warranty. If you ever need a boat anchor you just tie some P cord to it and toss <laughs> her off the side. Cause it's, it, I think it's like 36 ounces. Um, you get up above 30, it'll really affect the way a lightweight rifle handles. Um, you know, you mount something like that on your Cooper or your Weatherby that's seven pounds and you put three pounds on top of it. It, uh, you know, by the time you get scope rings and everything on there, it, it, it really throws off the balance of your rifle and it, it makes it hard to shoot off hand and makes it not fun to hunt with. So, so can my question is, can you get the best of both worlds if you're willing to pay the money? Can you get super lightweight with all of the adjustments? No. No. No, you don't you don't get it all. You can't can't buy a race car that works as a you know, as much money well, as you want to spend. Ten thousand pounds of horses. Yeah. And uh and unfortunately no, there's there's things we can do. You look at you know, Swarovski's version of the night force. Um, it's got 85 top to bottom. I think it's just as precise. Um, and it's eight ounces lighter weight and with way better glass. And if you're willing to pay for it, that scopes three grand. I think that is like about as close as you're going to get. Yeah. But, but it's still, I think compared to your Leopold, I think it's eight ounces heavier. So, um, you know, for a backcountry hunt, Um, companies, companies have really come together, um, over the last probably two years, um, and found, I think there's this niche of guys that is wanting to be able to hit a thousand yards, but are really trying to hunt out to that six or eight, maybe a little bit more than that. And they're trying to give you a good glass because night force glass has never been the pinnacle of glass. The, the Swarovski and Zeiss and Leica have always had better glass than night force. Night Force comes into the precision long range stuff. Their their turrets are the most accurate turrets on the market. And so the the companies have really started to narrow down on that market and realize how um how quickly it's grown and how big a deal it is. Um that Leopold um three to fifteen VX five, we got the five zoom ratio, fifteen power is perfectly capable of uh stretching out to 800 yards on big game animals. But I think that, and the turret is capable of getting out to 12 or 13 with most cartridges and it's $900 scope at 21 ounces, I think with good glass. And so, um, you know, and Zeiss, Zeiss came out this year with a conquest V four 
same same kind of market that we're looking at. I think you checked that out at the expo, didn't you? Yeah. I did, yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty slick scope for the money. Um, Liverpool came out with their VX6 HD, which is kind of like the Cadillac version. I think Kendall asked you why you didn't get that one. You remember that? Yeah, well, I don't have <laughs> the money, Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I got a kick out of that. I think he was concerned that I was... Uh, he was buying the wrong scope because I had talked to, you know, you're pretty high on that VX5. It's like, well, yeah, Dustin would have got the VX6 if he had another <laughs> thousand bucks. Yeah. But, um, Thanks for rubbing no, it so, in. Right. And, you know, Night Force came out with a series a couple years ago called the Shooter Hunter Varmitter series. Um, maybe going, and we, we start looking what we're paying for here. Um, you know, they, they make a 5 to 20 in there at just under 1200 bucks. Um, it's got 80 minutes top to bottom. So a little bit more room in your turret. Um, and then maybe a little more precise turret. Um, it's a, it's a big deal when we start talking about turrets, just because the turret says it's a quarter minute, you got to realize how hard it is to properly machine those turrets and the internals on that scope. And it's what guys pay two and three grand for. We just talked about drawing a circle, dividing it by 360 degrees, and then dividing one of those degrees by 60, and then dividing one of those by a quarter. And every time you click that, it's got to move that much, right? Yeah. And that, that's really important. If that's off by 2%, we're missing targets at 1,000 yards. And, and then besides that, you've got springs holding this erector tube you're trying to move. And it's rebounding in the middle of it all at the same time between every shot. And it's got to return to that zero every time. That is an incredibly tough thing to machine with a micro, with a micro explosion happening underneath it. Every right. Right. And it's, it's two inches above. So you've got torque going the other way besides, um, that's a really, really complex thing to hit. And that's why guys, that's why, you know, you and I are talking about a $900 scope is kind of a price point scope because we're asking so much for that to do because we also need it to pull light really well. Um, and be, light, being, be lightweight. And be lightweight um, and be clear. And so we're asking a lot of these scopes, and I don't think people understand. And I, I try to talk customers who are looking, you know, if, if you got $400 budget on a scope, you can buy a great hunting scope. I try to push guys away from turrets at that because it's much easier for a company to cut an ad- accurate reticle into their glass and give you 20 minutes or six minutes or whatever you need into the glass reticle than it is to machine that turret perfectly. Yeah. Um, and it, there's some things we can do um, to see how well that's working. If I've got an issue with a rifle scope to see a lot, you hear about tracking issues if you had that Leupold on there and I ran it out to what I thought was 500 yards and I'm missing targets and I don't know why it's because it could be because that erector tube isn't moving perfectly, or it could just be because I'm a bad shot. Um, but it's really easy to chase your tail with a scope that's not working properly. Well, um, and, and I've, I've heard you say this before and I think this summarizes what we're talking about pretty well here. Um, and, and this is super general, um, generalizing but in the united states we typically we tend if we have say a thousand dollar budget for an entire rifle and scope setup 
an a, an American might spend seven hundred on the rifle and three hundred on the optic. Have you, right. you do you see that quite often in your oh, line, yeah. line of work? That's pretty. Oh yeah, and I and I've seen it seen it in way way more drastic. Uh, yeah. Way more. I've seen guys spend two grand or twenty five hundred on a rifle and two hundred on a scope. <laughs> and two hundred two hundred dollars buys you a decent piece of glass. You know the Leupold VX one or Rifleman or whatever. That's what I grew up shooting. And you can hit stuff at 400 yards with it really well, and it's not bad. But you're not turning turrets on it. Yeah. The and 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 the key there is the benefit I think that you would get from you know going going from a $700 rifle down to a $500 rifle or even a $400 rifle. You're probably not going to lose much in ratio to the amount that you would gain from going from you know a $250 scope up to a 500 or a $600 scope. You're, yeah, you're, you're absolutely. Wouldn't you yeah, agree that you would, you would make, make more, a uh, faster, more improvement in your, in your setup there by, you know, at least going 50, 50 with your glass over your gun. Right. Absolutely. I think, you know, you hit the nail on the head with, um, you know, and every, everybody's got a budget you and I included. Um, I, I think, you look on the shelf of even brand new rifles and you're going to see 10 different manufacturers promising, I guaranteeing one MOA out of their rifle under $500, right? If you're, if you've got a $700 rifle and you're not promising one MOA on it, you're never going to sell one, right? You know, or if that's not the expectation. Um, and so when we spend that extra 500 on a rifle and then only buy a $200 scope, um, you, you are missing out cause we just talked about that one MOA being 10 inches. So we've got a 10 inch circle that this, you know, Savage or Tika is promising at a thousand yards. One MOA is one MOA. So if I can hit a one inch square at a hundred in theory, I can do it at a thousand. Now it's a little more complex than that, but not, not much, but you know, the $200 scope isn't promising you that. So. I do agree, you know, spending more money on the glass. I see guys put expensive glass on Tika's all the time um, because Tika shoots for 600 bucks. You're getting a stellar rifle that shoots really well, but you can't shoot what you can't see, you know? And so if, if you don't have everything else set up properly, then you're just not going to hit targets. Perfect. Man, I think um, we we may have missed a few things, but you know, and it's it's too late at this point if someone's already listened this far. But do not listen to this podcast if you don't want to learn more about um, optics, because <laughs> <laughs> we just went into it, man. And and we could we could you know we could keep going. Um, we could have another podcast talking about a whole other. You know, like you said, I mean, you, yeah, this is a rabbit hole. We could keep going down a long ways, but, um, touch just as we wrap up here, um, just briefly touch on some of the hardware that can also, you know, again, that being said, back to the budget conversation, you know, splitting your budget 50, 50, um, how often do you see guys, that regardless of what rifle they have, they might buy a, say they go out and buy a 500 or a $900, uh, loophole VX five, and then, uh, slap, uh, you know, $25, 
uh, rings and bases on their on their setup. I mean, how often do you see guys skimp on on the rings and bases, and what does that do for a scope? Definitely too commonly. You have a lot of. I mean, there's a lot of educated guys, and they'll they'll go out and buy it. But it is it's hard. Like I I love guns. You know that about me. You and I. I love that you've been you know jumping into that rabbit hole with me. But don't tell it, my uh, archery friends. <laughs> yeah. Check out Dustin's gun broker account history <laughs> in the last month. <laughs> um, yeah. So it, it's really, really easy for me to go out and like want to buy a rifle and like save up the money and buy a rifle. And I, uh, I definitely have champagne taste on a beer budget. And so I've got a few rifles that don't have scopes on them because I, you know, I, I find a good scope being an important and I don't want to short them. So I, I play musical scopes on my guns all the time for hunts. And, you know, I, I'm always reciting stuff in. Well, it's even harder. I think for most guys, you know, it's, it's fun to buy the gun, the glass, you know, spend a thousand bucks on the gun. And it's like, oh, I got to save up another thousand bucks for a rifle scope. I should have just bought a handgun cause I don't need that. And then, you're telling me I need to spend another $200 on hardware. Um, but it's super important. You got to connect those dots. We talked about that recoil and how it's going to affect there. Um, we talked about everything centering up, um, and good hardware is really important. And so, um, it's not something you want to skimp on for bases. I try to always put steel on, um, unless it's like a really, really mild cartridge. Um, and it's got to be precision machine, just like everything else. You know, we've got precision rifles. We've got precision scopes now. Um, I really like the warm stuff for the money. I've been using a ton of theirs. They make a ring for 110 bucks. Um, that's what you picked up for your Weatherby, isn't it? Yeah, it's the, uh, I can't remember the exact model. The mount, I think it's the Mountain Tech Light or yep. something like that or Ultralight or whatever they call it. Yeah. But, uh, it's It's their, you know, it's their... Uh, higher higher grade lighter weight yeah that's that's a stellar ring i really like the design i think night force kind of has the pinnacle of 30 and 34 mil rings but they're 170 to 200 bucks um those warns for 110 are really really solid rings um and warren actually makes it's a harder ring to mount and it's not nearly as pretty um, but they make some side mounting stuff closer to the like 50 dollars, 60 dollars range that's really really good um, but you got to use good hardware. Um, there's a lot of it out there. Use steel bases. Don't use aluminum bases. Um, one piece versus it, two piece. Um, depends on what you're doing. So like your Weatherby, um, you know, six, five by 300 Weatherby is, you know, it's a hard charger, but you're still only pushing 140 grain bullet out. It's not a three, three, eight Lapua or a 300 wind mag. Um, I, in a backcountry rifle, I like the looks of two pieces better. Um, typically, um, I'm not because of going back to typically, I'm not going to run a 20 MOA base on that. When I, one piece is always stronger. Um, but with lighter weight scopes, you know, the heavier scope is the more recoil it's going to, the harder it's going to be on the hardware. So if we have a lightweight scope that helps us, heavy scopes hurt us, light cartridges help us, heavy cartridges hurt us. So most backcountry rifles I'm setting up with a two-piece steel base. Um, if I need to go to a one-piece because I've got a heavier scope on, I'm up above 25, closer to 30-ounce scope, and I need the extra strength, I'll put a one-piece on. 
Um, I think a lot of guys make a mistake of putting a 20 MOA base on. Um, we didn't do it with your rifle because we know we don't need it. We've got 75 top to bottom. You cut that in half, we get 32 and a half or 37 and a half MOA. That gets us way past a thousand yards. But if I mount that on a 20 MOA base, what's that? Explain, what that does? Explain the 20 MOA base. Yeah. Briefly. So let's say we've we've got a rifle scope that has 80 minutes top to bottom, or let, let's use 60. So we cut it in half and we've got 30 up and 30 down. And I'll go back to the elevator um, diagram. So we're on the 30th floor now and I need more than that. And so I, I want 50 MOA, but I only have 30 up and 30 down. What we can do is we can angle that base down. And so the backside of your one piece base is a little bit higher hmm. than your front. And so rather than starting on the 30th floor, we're going to start on the 50th. So then I have 50 MOA down. You learn something right? new on every podcast. I'll tell you what. Absolutely. That's what we do, right? Yep. That's why I do this. I don't care about these yep. listeners. I don't give a crap. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so now all of a sudden we just opened up all that room so we can, we have more adjustment in my turret so we can hit a target farther away. Well, the, the downside and why I wouldn't want to do that with that Leupold or your Swarovski is um, now that erector tube is angling, once again, to a farther part. So when I'm setting up a shot, right, you know, where I take most of my shots, we just talked to the to 400s, probably where we're taking most of our shots. We're not using the best piece of our glass. And so I, I don't like... I don't like just setting up your gun using a really poor piece of glass unless we have to. Yeah. You know, if we're trying to stretch the distance or your scope doesn't have enough room to do what it wants to, then throw a 10 or 20 MOA base on it. But I yeah. like using the centerpiece of glass whenever we can. Yeah, the more we can play in the middle, the better. Yep. Okay. So. Wow, man. So there's a whole, you know, and as I was sitting here, there's a whole nother I mean, you, you could go another hour and a half on actually mounting and sighting in and, and getting the thing set up rather than choosing what scope is right. And um, that's, frankly, I think that's just a YouTube video and, and we should probably shoot that sometime. Um, in fact, maybe we'll do it uh, once I, my, my Weatherby's at the shop right now getting an AccuBreak uh, put on. So... <clears throat> how how impatient are you getting oh with my that gosh. i know it's, you want to play with that thing it's driving me nuts um, yeah i drove down uh, and dropped it off i might drive down and just pick it up like okay where whatever you have done just give it to me it's yeah. fine. <laughs> i uh i might have let me go through one more thing before you cut me off i want to keep the microphone just a little bit or the wander a little bit longer is that all right go for it man we're we're um, i'm recording through this so <laughs> perfect um so one cool thing we can do with turrets um, is rather than using MOA, if we want to simplify stuff, and I get I get kind of the, you know, imagine Boyd Witt we're walking in right now, Dustin's dad, saying, hey, I want to set up the scope, but I don't want to learn all this MOA crap. You know, that's, you know, that how Boyd would feel about it. Basically. You want to dive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and I get that a lot. Like, they you only want to dive so far into the wormhole because we've got other stuff. Maybe I'm an archery hunter who just wants to rifle hunt once a year. Rather than using the MOA on the top of your turret, we can give a company all your ballistics. Um, 
Swarovski, Leopold, uh, Vortex will all cut turrets for you. Um, and what, what that means is I'm going to take all those MOA deviations off the top of my rifle scope and I'm just going to put yardages on there and it, it simplifies everything, um, quite a bit. Now we talked about earlier on the podcast that those that can only be true at one elevation and one temperature. So kind of know, you know, I tell guys 7,500 vert seems to be pretty happy. If I was a high country Colorado hunter, I might do 10,000 vert and I'll usually do, you know, 30 degrees or 40 degrees, um, kind of somewhere in the middle. Um, but I give them all my ballistics for my six, five, 300 weather B and they spit me out a turret that actually like mounts right onto your, you know, you take your factory turret off and it mounts right on there with the actual um, yardages rather than just two, four, six, eight tick marks. Yeah. So your, your Leopold right now comes with a coupon right in the box, which I think is great marketing. And I think it's a great feature. It's a good selling point on that scope where I can take that coupon and it's free for one turret. So if I know I'm going to leave it on a six, five, 300 and I know what bolt I'm shooting, I go sight that thing in, put it on a chronograph, give them all my data, tell them what elevation and temperature I wanted at, tell them I zeroed at 200 and they're going to have 200 yards, 300 yards, four, all the way out to like a thousand or 1200 yards cut right into the turret. So now all I got to do is have somebody hit it with a range finder, turn it to 800 yards and take the shot. Now, you still got to know what your temperature does. You know, maybe you want to, there's range finders out there that will give you that compensated for elevation and for temperature and that sort of stuff. Um, but I, I think that's a good feature for a lot of guys who don't want to, you know, they don't want to have to be, they don't want a ballistic app in the field and they don't want to have to deal with all that. They just want to turn and crank it to 750 and pull the trigger. Yeah. Right. So. That's a cool. That's a cool feature. It's something that uh, is really easy to do. Kitten optics. If like Night Force, I don't think builds turrets. They'll do it but for you. Kitten, Kitten Industries does them for like any mainstream rifle scope. Cool. So, yeah, it yeah. is something else I didn't know. All right, man. Um, appreciate you coming on. Um, because you're such a frequent guest, I'm not going to worry about going through all the, uh, you know, the fire round and stuff like that. Because uh, we're going to have we're going to have you on dozens more times, I'm sure in the next years to come. So, um, if anyone has questions, they can, the best thing I'll always say with Corey on here is just to email, uh, myself at finding backcountry at gmail.com or message, uh, me on Instagram is usually how people seem to, to, uh, correspond. And then, you know, Corey and I are a text message away his schedule, part of the reason is his schedule is just so, uh, you know, sporadic and stuff. You're actually going to get a quicker response going through me and then me going through Corey, um, <laughs> honestly. Um, yeah. So got to throw smoke signals up into the air and yep. Yep. all sorts of stuff to get a hold of me. Yep. Um, other than that, uh, you know, one thing I'll mention, and I don't, I don't try to plug anything, but you know, this is the end of the podcast and, um, most people aren't even listening anymore anyway. So, um, if you go to team backcountrycom you'll find all of our, everything, everything's organized there with, um, everything from the podcast to some of our favorite photos, to the gear that we use. 
There's also a store, and lately we've been selling quite a few T-shirts, um, Team Backcountry T-shirts, and then we've got some, just some, you know, short phrase saying T-shirts, uh, Backcountry Hunters Go Deeper, which is true, they do. And, Personal favorite. Yep, and and the Purebred Road Hunter uh, T-shirt, which is a, are two of the favorites. And so if you're so inclined, go on and, uh, you know, I don't ask for much and I'm not asking you to buy those t-shirts, honestly, cause I will, I will, I promise I will keep doing this podcast, whether you buy a t-shirt or not. So, uh, do whatever you want Buy zero, buy a hundred of them. I don't care. So, um, other than that, just looking forward to, uh, tags coming out this year and we'll kind of keep you guys updated on what, uh, tags we draw. And then if you have any other, um, topics like this that you want us to go through that's more techie and uh gear stuff please just reach out and let me know and we'll uh we'll get it on the slate otherwise i'll i kind of mix these in every month or two um between just having a you know what i'll call a normal guest because Corey's not normal um a normal guest that you know is more stories and uh stuff tactics and stuff like that of the actual hunt so Corey, thanks for coming on man any last words no keep shooting have fun Okay, appreciate it. Uh, I think this is a South Cox comment, but uh, what's he say? Don't shoot shoot straight, or if you're like me, shoot often. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, cool. Have a good one, brother. Yep, appreciate your expertise. Thanks, buddy. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Finding Backcountry podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you subscribe and mention it to your friends. But the best thing you can do leave a rating on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. For notes and links to this and other episodes, please visit findingbackcountry.com.